This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network and Workers' Comp Matters. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. I'm with the law firm of Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano in Salem, Massachusetts, where the focus of our practice is representation of injured workers in claims arising out of injuries or accidents that occur in the workplace. We've had a number of guests on Workers' Comp Matters, but uh, today's guest comes at the subject from a bit different perspective. I'm uh, very pleased to welcome Gilda Mariani to Workers' Comp Matters. Gilder is a litigation attorney in white-collar crime, where she has worked both as a defense attorney with the firm of Obermeyer, Morvillo, and Abramovitz, and as a prosecutor, uh, where she currently works in the New York County District Attorney's Office. There she has held several supervisory positions as a deputy chief of the Frauds Bureau and the chief of tax crimes and money laundering unit. She is a council member of the Government and Public Sector Lawyers Division of the American Bar Association, and a member of the ABA's Committee on Disaster Response and Preparedness. Jill was the recipient in 2012 of the Robert M. Morgenthau Award presented by the District Attorney's Association of the State of New York, and she recently conducted investigations that led to the recent New York County Grand Jury Report on Workers' Compensation Reform. So, Jill, welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you, Alan, and I appreciate this opportunity on behalf of my office. Of course, I'm going to make the usual disclaimer that all of my comments are mine and not necessarily those of my office. Okay, and having said that, let's get right into this grand jury report. It's not often that we see, uh, at least from my more limited experience, grand jury reports regarding a system or an area of law. So could you give us a little background as to how a grand jury was convened and why? Well, you, you know, you're right. You're not alone in that view, Alan. Under New York law, grand jury can render a presentment or grand jury report recommending administrative, executive, or legislative changes. And although they're rare, nevertheless, it's a longstanding tradition in New York. So this particular grand jury had several subjects under investigation before it, and in some instances it returned indictments, and in other instances they were a court-approved disposition. After those specific investigations were concluded, the grand jury turned to this other function that I just described, and received additional evidence that related to the issues contained in the report. And it focused on some areas in the area of premium fraud or employer fraud that they believed needed addressment. And when did the grand jury convene and when did it uh, issue its report? What was the time frame here? Well, some of that is um, not for public conception, but I can tell you that the report was released in um, March of this year. And what were the particular issues addressed by the report in addition to whatever indictments might have been handed up? Well, the grand jury um, noticed that there were several areas that needed some, some addressing, and they basically dealt with recommendations to change the process, the application process, the audit process. They also recommended some changes in the laws, the penal law and the workers' compensation law, that are the tools of the prosecutor. They dealt with data collection, which I think is one of the most exciting areas that they spent time on. 
and they also suggested some reform and some pension paid to a broader education of community and others beyond employers and employees. So the report issued in March of this year, and I take it a lot of it, if not most of it, dealt with issues of fraud. And uh, I suppose we could try to break that down as we then get into the heart of the report and its recommendations. Could you differentiate for us the types of fraud that one sees in workers' comp between, for example, employee or claimant fraud uh, versus employer fraud? Unlike employee or claimant fraud where the employee is falsifying his or her injuries, as you said earlier, gets much of the public attention. And unlike provider fraud, where the health provider may inflate or falsify benefits for the employees, employer or premium fraud concentrates on the underpayment of the insurance premium for the workers' compensation insurance policy. And there's several ways in which an employer can cheat. Uh, Do you want me to go into that? Yeah, I think maybe just to step back a bit, I think most of our audience knows, but those who don't need to be reminded that the premium that an insurance company charges its policyholder and employer for providing workers' compensation insurance generally, if not exclusively, is based upon the amount of payroll that they pay for their employees as well as the classification of their employees because clearly certain jobs, for example, administrative or sedentary jobs, have a lesser risk of injury or serious injury than more higher-risk jobs as roofers or uh, steeplejacks or people who work on or around, uh, you know, heavy equipment. So I suspect that what the grand jury was focusing on, and you can elaborate on this, is the actions of certain employers that would either underreport its payroll or misclassify its employees as uh, sedentary workers as opposed to something else. Is that, am I in the right ballpark? You're right. You're right on the money. So you basically said it very well. Okay. So what were the types of incidences of premium fraud? First of all, I think you were focusing on the New York State Insurance Fund. That's correct? That's correct. We were looking at employers that were basically in the construction industry, and their policies had really been issued by the New York State Insurance Fund, which is not a private insurance carrier. But the issues that the grand jury was reviewing is applicable to any employment field and is applicable to the private insurance carriers. Okay, so the New York State Insurance Fund not being a private insurance company is essentially a government insurance company, am I correct? Well, it's a not-for-profit entity that was created around 1914, right after the workers' compensation law was enacted. And their role is to make sure that there is affordable workers' compensation policy for employers. It's regarded as the insurance company of last resort, so to speak. They cover 40% of the market, which is the largest segment of the market in New York. But any one employer can seek their coverage. And I think in Massachusetts, we have something similar. It's not a government insurance company, but we have, and I think a lot of other states and jurisdictions share in this type of description, it's an assigned risk pool or more broadly known as the involuntary insurance market as opposed to the voluntary insurance market so that there are some employers for whatever reason, financial instability, a record of poor payment of premium or high risk that a private insurance company may not want to write their business, 
an assigned risk pool or in, in New York, the state insurance fund becomes the insurance company, as you put it, of last resort so that their employees are at least covered by some entity. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Okay. So what were the types of abuses of the system that your investigation and and the grand jury found was taking place? Well, they focused on situations where the underpayment resulted from either the underreporting of the payroll, the underreporting of the number of the employees, and their misclassification, and misclassification was in two sets. One is, just as you described before, their classification as maybe a clerical person instead of a roofer, which has an impact on the premium, but also their misclassification as um, independent contractor instead of an employee. And as a result, were there specific employers that were found to have engaged in this type of conduct and, and were the penalties either paid or being prosecuted? Oh, as I said before, some people that were charged and their matters are pending and I can't comment on them. And then there were others that had come to a disposition and in the course of the court order disposition, there were premiums paid and there were fines that will be levied at the conclusion. They're all pending a bit, so I really can't comment on them. But those are the ones that were part of the current active investigations. And then much of what is in the report deals with what the grand jury hopes would be a recommendation for consideration by administrators or the executive branch or legislators. All right. And before we get to that, let's try to put all of this in perspective of dollars and cents. First of all, I know this and you know this, but I think a lot of people don't know this. Workers' compensation is a rather large industry in terms of dollars. How much of an impact is workers' comp in New York? You're right. That's a very good point. Uh, Workers' compensation is a $6 billion industry in New York, and I know it's much larger on a national basis. I mean, this is a... That's billion with a B. Yes, yes, billion with a B, yes. How much could you estimate might have been lost in unpaid premiums, either system-wide or in any focused areas under your jurisdiction? Well, with the assistance of some of the evidence that went before the grand jury, we were able to provide evidence that approaching a half a billion dollars in unpaid premiums and taxes were lost. In New York City alone, in the New York City construction industry in just one year, and much of that data came from a 2013 New York Fiscal Policy Institute report. The bulk of that money is attributable to unpaid premiums. The rest of it, and some people may be surprised to know this, but the rest of it is attributable to the underreporting of payroll and therefore underpayment of withholding taxes, unemployment insurance taxes. It has an effect on FICA. It has an effect on corporate taxes, personal income taxes, and it goes on and on and on. And even beyond that, I think an employer that pays less than its fair share of the workers' comp premium probably get some type of distinct business advantage over its competitors. And how does that work? Well, you're right. And that is part of the, I think, the seriousness of the problem here is who are the various victims to this conduct? Lots of times they're focused on the employees. But in fact, you have to think about the employers, the law by employers who now have a considerable 
disadvantage in bidding because they have an overhead that others don't have. They uh, are paying their workers on the books, and therefore they can't always get, you know, they might have difficulty in getting some employees. And they may actually end up assuming some of the shortfall of this in the premiums that they paid. You have the employees that, of course, are victimized by not getting all their benefits, not being in a position to maybe have pensions and, and, and health benefits. But you have two other victims that I think we forget about. The consumer, who may in fact have to pick up the shortfall, just like anybody does in an insurance fraud. And then the taxpayers that um, have to deal with the shortfall in revenue. And this probably has another impact on maybe some of the workforce that is most vulnerable to abuse. I'm thinking primarily of low-end wage earners and or entry-level wage earners and or perhaps immigrant wage earners, whether they are documented or undocumented that might be in the system. Have you found that that segment of the employment population might be more affected by the misdoings of employers than some of the other uh, sectors of the community? Well, there wasn't any finding on that in particular, but I think you're correct in pointing out that when somebody is in a more vulnerable category and not able to really complain about unfairness or inequities, that they are more subject to the abuse of the system. And, of course, they end up not having many of the benefits that they need to maintain themselves uh, economically. Now, is this an issue confined really to uh, New York County, New York State, or is it a broader issue that you you see out there? It's a much broader issue. I think it's a national issue, even though workers' compensation is basically state-regulated. We had done a, a panel program at the Workers' Compensation Conference back in March of this year, the one sponsored by the Tort Trial Insurance Practice Section and the Labor Law Section of the American Bar Association. And their colleagues that joined me from other jurisdictions, we talked about the national problem. And I remember that. I didn't attend that particular panel, but I remember, I believe your panel was titled How Workers' Compensation Insurance Premium Fraud Destabilizes the Competitive Markets. Who was on your panel? I had three terrific guests. I had Matthew Capisi, who's a representative of the general president of the United Brotherhood of Carpenters. I had Major Jeffrey Branch of the law enforcement operations of the Florida Department of Financial Services in part of the Division of Insurance Fraud. And I had Vicki Hightower, who's the chief deputy district attorney of the special prosecution section of Riverside County in California. And, and as you know, Florida is very aggressive in reform these days, as is California. I think this might be a good time to take a short break. And when we come back, we will turn to some of the recommendations of the grand jury report and what my colleagues in New York hope to change to make this issue less of a problem. So uh, we'll be right back with Joe Mariani. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, 
and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Well, welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters. This is Alan Kiss, and I'm talking with Joe Mariani of the New York County District Attorney's Office and the recently issued report by a grand jury on workers' compensation fraud. Jill, you had mentioned at the outset that the grand jury, among its charges, was to come up with recommendations, and I wonder if we could turn to those recommendations. Could you put maybe the general categories, and then we can narrow down our discussion? Sure. There were some that were in the area of more administrative in the form of changes to the application process and audit process. There were recommendations that dealt with changes to the criminal statutes that apply, recommendations that dealt with technology collection, and some recommendations as to education. Okay, so let's start with application. This would be the process by which an employer would would apply for coverage through the New York State Insurance Fund? Right, or any insurance policy carrier. Or any insurance company. Okay, so what... What recommendations to try to curb the abuse of misclassification or underreporting um, did the grand jury uh, recommend? Well, they suggested an overhauling of the application form to have either a uniform or standard application. And they felt that there was a threefold advantage to this for auditors who later have to review the material. You have a standard application makes it easier to catch discrepancies or irregularities. You have a standard application that could be electronically communicated and therefore easily searchable. And you have one that can be stored into a powerful database. The other aspect of the application I think that pays to comment on is that there should be a requirement that the employer swear to the information in the application. Right now there isn't that and there's no warnings that all the statements are made under penalties. And this is a little ironic because under New York law, an employee who submits an injury-related claim must certify that he or she is entitled to the payment by signing a, a certification on the back of the check. It's odd that the law doesn't impose a similar obligation upon the employers purchasing coverage. You know, it's funny. I've always wondered about that because uh, my clients have picked up on the fact that many times they are signing documents, checks, or what we call employee earnings forms where they are frequently or often signing various things under the pains and penalties of perjury regarding their receipt of benefits. Obviously, should they be caught not in compliance with what they've signed, this gives an easier time to any prosecutor or even an insurance fraud bureau to deal with this in some form or fashion. And it would seem only fair and, in fact, more than fair that an employer at the outset, if he, if that employer were going to certify that uh, they're the way they classify their employees or their payroll is correct, they should at least have the same obligations. So from my perspective, representing injured workers, I'm glad to see the playing field attempting to be leveled here. So is there anything else in the application process, or should we maybe... That's, you know, those are the highlights. Then they, they did focus a bit on the audit process. I mean, the auditing process is really a disinfectant for fraud. And uh, as you know, uh, the audit process doesn't take place until sometime after the policy is concluded. 
for the each year. It's an estimate in the beginning, and everybody hopes they'll true up uh, at the end of the audit. But particularly in construction, where the employees are no longer maybe at the site and the site is finished and people are moving on, the audit becomes more of a difficult process. So among the recommendations were for everyone, not just the state insurance fund, which does a really good job of auditing, but for all private carriers to do as rigorous an audit as they could, do an on-site physical inspection, particularly in the construction industry, do a thorough document review, just don't you know, do a cursory phone inquiry, try to get the information that was provided during the audit electronically transmitted so that it's available later on if there's an allegation of fraud. And two other things that, are kind of, that are, I think are very important is to have the employer certify at the end of the audit that what was provided was correct under the pain of perjury and to acknowledge or dispute the auditor's findings. Because lots of times you have these supplemental reports that are done at the very end of an audit and there's no indication of whether the employer is you know, accepting or rejecting this. Uh, usually has a representative go on his behalf and you can't connect it with the individual. I noticed in reading the report that the grand jury also recommended an identification card. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, that was very interesting. The grand jury um, picked up on some of the witnesses' suggestions, and they urged a workers' compensation identification card be issued to each employee. They suggested that the card contain the name of the employee, the employer, the insurance carrier. And this would be something that's presented when the employee seeks the medical services or prescription drugs, connection with their injury, or shown to the general contractors or law enforcement or first responders, you know, or auditors. It's a, it's a way in which you can further get transparency as to the true situation in the policy. And I noticed that misclassification of employees as independent contractors is something you touched upon earlier and is certainly mentioned and addressed in the report. How significant a problem has that been or does that continue to be? Well, it continues to be an issue. It's not just an issue in workers' compensation. It's an issue in various labor practices as well. And the grand jury noticed that the certificates of insurance that are given to the policy provider uh, in the case of uh, independent contractors or subcontractors don't really have very much information. So they recommended that there would be more information contained on that so that it would be clear as to how many employees and when, what this particular policy was for. So there'd be better transparency. I'm going to describe a scenario that, that I've run into more than once in Massachusetts and, and ask if the same scenario plays out the same way in New York. A client comes in to me. He suffered an injury on the job. He was performing the work of a carpenter for a construction company. And lo and behold, the insurance policy, the employer only listed clerical staff and perhaps one or two managerial carpenters and the rest of his workforce really were employees, but he sent them 1099 forms, uh, treated them as independent contractors, but using all the standard common law and statutory tests of whether somebody is an employee or an independent contractor or a subcontractor. Clearly, all of his workers, and including my injured client, was an employee and should have been paid on a W-2 form with applicable taxes. But no premium was collected 
for all of these laborers uh, so that this particular insurance company would issue issued a policy relatively cheaply was faced with a serious injury by somebody for whom they did not collect a premium in Massachusetts my client nevertheless was able to collect benefits from that insurance company and it was up to that insurance company to go back to this employer and try to recoup or back charge for unreported premium so the point i'm trying to make is even though the employer had, in essence, defrauded the insurance company, it did not preclude my client or the employees of collecting. Does that same scenario hold true in New York? If, if that same scenario took place, would the injured worker be deprived of, of coverage or would the insurance fund or the private insurer nevertheless have to pay and then be at the mercy of what they could get back from the employer after the fact? Well, what you're describing there is that the insurer had a policy but the policy did not correctly reflect all of his employment force, so therefore he did get it cheaply. And in that case, I think what you described is probably going to be the same scenario in New York. The more difficult situation is when they don't have insurance at all, and then the employee has to apply to a um, uninsured employer's fund in New York and seek coverage, and that becomes a more arduous process in the sense of you know, how long they get the benefits, and then there is usually, I imagine there's coverage for them along the way, but that can be passed along to the law-abiding employee, employers who are later, you know. In fact, that's another area of employer fraud we really didn't touch upon, and I'm not sure the grand jury report spent a lot of time with, and that is the employers who didn't even purchase workers' compensation to begin with. I mean, that's another separate area. What criminal statutes uh, were recommended to be strengthened or changed? Well, there was three or four recommendations, and I'll just touch on maybe the major two. One is that the workers' compensation law criminal statutes be amended to have graduate degrees of felony offenses. Right now, under the statute, it's the low-level felony, and whether the premium owed was $100,000 or $1,000, the penalty is basically the same, so which is very different as to other crimes that we have in New York where there's a graduated statute based on the threshold dollar amount. Grand larceny is like that. Insurance fraud is like that. So they recommended that that be uh, looked at. They also recommended a, an increase in the criminal fines to provide a more proportionate financial deterrent because you can have a situation where the amount of fine is really not as great as the savings for the premium fraud. So if you had something which enabled the court to uh, impose a fine that could be double or triple the amount of the premium saved, that could be a deterrence. And we have other statutes in New York that have their criminal fine schedules based on that kind of a system. And two very quick last points before we uh, wrap up for uh, this session of Workers' Comp Matters. I believe you mentioned there were some other grand jury recommendations for broader education. Just if you could briefly touch upon what they uh, saw as an area to be improved upon. Well, I think they were focused in part on increasing the community awareness about the negative effects of premium fraud and to also let employees understand how to protect themselves because when they are in this process of being regarded as an independent contractor, they may in fact have uh, incurred liability or costs that they're not aware of. This can also be done through bar associations and, and trade groups. 
last year, the district attorney's office, together with a, a local bar association, the New York County Lawyers Association, came up with a 10-hour program of trying to educate small business people in various areas, and that worked very well, and this could well be a model for the workers' compensation area. And and, and, Well, I was going to say, from what I heard about your panel discussion at the ABA TIPS conference in Chicago was an analogy that has stuck with me, and uh, perhaps uh, you can comment on it. I think either one of your panelists is said to have said that an employee defrauding the system is not unlike a shoplifter at Target whereas uh, the employers that defraud the system is more like a, an 18-wheeler that backs up to the loading dock at Target and fills up the truck with, with merchandise. Uh, did I overstate or understate the... Uh... That is. It was a very apt uh, analogy by one of my colleagues. And if one wants to learn more about this, I believe there's a webinar scheduled at the end of May. Could you give us a little plug for that if you want? Well, uh, first of all, if they want to hear more about this, they certainly can um, see the link for the Grand Jury Report in its totality. There's a section in there that talks about technology and data collection, and we didn't have a chance to go into that. And um, we're trying to plan, I don't have confirmation yet, that on May 28th, a webinar with the tort trial and insurance practice uh, section's worker compensation committee for a 90-minute teleconference on um, the type of thing that we talked at the uh, workers' compensation conference, but uh, elaborating a little bit more because we have 90 minutes. So uh, if somebody's interested, they could just look at the website for the ABA, American Bar Association, TIPS section, which is Tort Insurance, Tort Trial and Insurance Practice section, and look for anything uh, for a, a webinar or teleconference on this subject. Well, Jill, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on Workers' Comp Matters. Uh, I want to commend the Office of the District Attorney and, and you as an investigator and an attorney in that office for helping uh, to focus the general public, your New York constituency, and now um, our audience on Workers' Comp Matters to the somewhat pervasive problem of employer fraud uh, because we are all, all of us who work in the system, desire a system that it is our efforts in trying to root out areas uh, that give a competitive disadvantage to other employers, impact on a state insurance fund or private insurance companies, and of, of course even injured workers are impacted by fellow injured workers who might defraud the system. So I think we all have the same goal. So I want to thank you very much for being a guest and look forward to seeing and talking to you again. And to those of you who are listening to Workers' Comp Matters, thank you for listening once again and go out and make it a day that matters. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.